Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Hey folks, it's Alex here, coming at you from a well-known American city. Which one does not matter? Because for about a month now, I've been in a different city every single day. As you may have guessed, I am on tour. That's the good news. It's been going great, sold-out shows on the Bass Strikes Back tour. The bad news is it's really hard to work on new episodes of the podcast. I have tried, <laughs> believe me. I'm in a quiet place now, but it does not happen very often. So uh, my friends at Osiris Media and I have decided to revisit some earlier episodes. I know we have a lot of new listeners that may not be familiar with those episodes, and I'm told they make great repeat listens. I appreciate everyone understanding that the return of touring has been a complete disruption. It's incredibly demanding and getting back in the swing of it and giving 200%, especially after all that time off, uh, is easier said than done. We have some great material in the works that is brand new, that is coming, and uh, we're going to better figure out how to deal with the disruption, but positive development of live touring. So thanks for bearing with us. Enjoy this best of episode, and I'll see you down the road with a new episode very soon. Take care. Testing. Let's bring up the level a little bit. Check. Let's take out this compression. Testing. One, two. Does this sound like a podcast? All right, I'm dialing it in. It sounds pretty fucking good. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Coleman. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, 
but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. An earlier L5 cutaway from the 30s, um, Pat Metheny brought it in. He had gotten it at the estate auction of Jay Giles. Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you a funny Jay story in a, in a minute. But, yeah. um, okay. and, and that guitar... Oh, right. It was from the 30s. It didn't have that problem, but it had a lot of other problems because Jay fucked it up. Oh, Jay shit. had some moron cut holes in it and shit. Oh, no. Uh, that charming voice you hear is Matt Umanov of Matt Umanov Guitars, a fixture of Greenwich Village for nearly 50 years. It's late 2018, and I find myself in his repair shop above the storefront. Uh, he just closed his store the year before, and um, I'm there to pick up a guitar and bring in a guitar. At a certain point, his stories are so good. I mention I'm doing a podcast. Is it okay if I hit record? He says fine, and without missing a beat, continues with story after story, including this one about two musicians I'd never think to mention in the same sentence. Pat Metheny and Jay Giles? Did you know Jay at all? I never did. No, I know nothing. I mean, I know his songs. But. We, only, I only, we only knew each other when we were teenagers. Oh, wow. When, when, when I... Then, um, I wouldn't think Metheny would be uh, so aware of that. Well, Metheny, the reason... I don't know how much they knew each other, but Metheny, he's into guitars with the Charlie Christian pickup. Um, and this L5, okay. Jay had had a Charlie Christian pickup installed in a beautiful 1930s L5, okay. which completely destroyed it because they chopped a big hole in the guitar. Okay. And it ended up whatever. So Pat brought it to us to kind of save it. Wow. Let's just ponder this for a moment. He is referring to Pat Metheny, the preeminent jazz guitarist, many would say, and I'd agree, one of the most influential jazz artists of the modern age, with a very distinct style of playing. That's not Pat, by the way. That's a poor man's imitation of Pat Metheny, as played by a certain podcast host. Now, Jay Giles is somebody I don't know much about, admittedly. I always figured he was the vocalist of the Jay Giles band, but I'm almost embarrassed to admit um, the first I've heard of him playing guitar is here in Matt Umanov's shop. So I'll be honest, the Jay Giles band was never for me. I do remember hearing them on classic rock radio when I was growing up, and it always struck me as um, very radio-friendly, uh, well-produced. I had to admire the production. And the songs were well-written. They just had these overbearing earworms like this. I assure you, uh, Jay Giles' records sound much better than that. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is I would not associate Jay Giles and Pat Metheny in any way, shape, or form, and I don't think most musicians would. Yet, here is a first-hand account from a very reliable source telling me that Pat Metheny purchased a 1930s Gibson L5 from the estate sale of Jay Giles, a guitar that the previous owner had quote-unquote fucked up and was in desperate need of repair. If you're a guitarist, or even if you're not, this can be fascinating stuff. This is not the type of story you hear every day. And Matt has lots of stories. He is fun to listen to, even when discussing a problem with your guitar that has kept you up at night. Which brings us to both the purpose of my visit 
and the reason we're on the subject of Gibson L5s in the first place. I am the proud owner of a 1976 blonde Gibson L5 previously owned by a local jazz legend from the San Francisco Bay Area named Calvin Keys. I purchased this guitar in the mid-90s and made a deal with myself to get my jazz guitar playing together or the guitar goes back. So needless to say, this guitar is very important to me. Uh, it's a cherished item. It does not come on the road with me. Um, I was on the road quite a bit in um, 2017 and 2018, so I didn't get a lot of chances to take it out of the case. I finally had some time off and took it out of the case, and I was horrified. There were these spots. There was corrosion. It looked like mold. Why would a guitar be molding? Is there mold in the case? Is there mold in my condominium? What the hell's going on? Listen in as I attempt to hand my guitar to Mr. Yumanov, who puts his hands over his eyes, says, I can tell you exactly what's going on without looking at it. It's got this weird thing going on. I, mean, I can tell you right now. I don't yeah. even have to look at it. Okay. The, 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 I don't have like to a, look at it. I'm okay. telling you something. These are turning green. Yeah. The frets down here are turning black right around here. And the, okay. pick, and the pick guard, it looks like it's shrinking up and starting to crumble. Bingo. How about that? How did I yeah, know? The, the, the pick guards are on um, these like tortoise, fake tortoise looking pick guards on Gibsons from more or less the 50s and 60s, more or less, are made of a nitrate plastic that eventually starts to disintegrate. You heard about like very early uh, movie film from like 1900 yeah. crumbling up in the can. Yeah. Same stuff, same reason. What he's referring to here is celluloid, described in the dictionary as a tough, highly flammable substance consisting essentially of cellulose nitrite and camphor, previously used in the manufacture of motion pictures, x-ray film, and other products. Other products, you say? Such as tortoiseshell colored pick guards placed on Gibson archtop guitars. Yeah. Same stuff, same reason. Wow. Uh, and what happens is it, it, it emits a gas and that corrodes the metal. That's what corroded the fact that it was in the case closed. Right. The gases, and even if it was open, it's, it's the proximity. What he's saying is perfectly logical. Yet, I'm still having trouble accepting it. I'm almost like a patient in the doctor's office that can't believe the prognosis isn't worse than it actually is. It is like some no. Mold no, it's not mold. It's, it's oxidation. Okay. It's the simple thing of combining with oxygen and turning it into some gas, okay. which is corrosive. Okay. okay. They corrode the plating, okay, uh -huh. and they eat into the metal. And if you look at your frets right up yeah, here, I guarantee they're, they're going to be black right here. He's exactly right, of course. So I think what happened was even though celluloid was being phased out by the 1970s, uh, the Gibson stockpile still had a lot of parts and supplies with celluloid, such as my pick guard. It, does, it isn't even sitting in the case. It's just, it's happening. What they call it gassing off. The stuff is, it's oxidizing. If you were into high school chemistry, if not, I'll skip it. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's very basic high school chemistry. Basically, it's a very slow burn. It's oxidizing. Damn it, celluloid. Celluloid always brings to mind this song from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Then something went wrong for Faye Ray and King Kong. They got caught in a celluloid jam. Maybe I could rewrite that song about my Gibson L5. 
The solution for it is getting rid of that pick guard, which I can either find or make a replacement for you, okay. Modern. If we can't get one exact right, we'll make one. By the way, that noodling you're hearing in the background? That's me. I'm there to pick up a guitar as well as have one diagnosed. The guitar I'm picking up is a vintage 68 SG. That has a whole other crazy story behind it. More on that later. It's pretty clear I'm looking at a big repair job, but the guitar I'm playing in the background is the best ad for his work. In terms of the metal, um, there's nothing to be done about that specifically other than replacing Place the cover, the which doesn't matter because it's cosmetic. Once this pickguard is taken away, that'll stop. The black frets, uh, I've never been able to get that shit out because it's deep. Yuri says he can do it. Yuri, it should be pointed out, is a guitar repair wizard who's kind of like Matt's sorcerer's apprentice. He appears to be in his 30s, though he's not in the shop at this particular day. Much of the labor is split between them, and Yuri takes on certain difficult tasks, like my black frets, all of which was corroded by this celluloid-covered pickguard. It, it, it emits a gas, and that corrodes the metal. That's what corroded the fact that it was in the case closed. Right. The gases... And even if it was open, it's, it's the proximity. So in other words, the celluloid on this classic pick guard functioned a little bit like tooth decay. It's a little bit like being told by the dentist, well, the good news is we've isolated the cavity. The bad news is you're going to need several root canals. So we can take care of that for you. Okay. And stop it, different pick guard, and clean up whatever is possible to clean and anything else it needs doing on a guitar. Did I have the work done? Yes. Was it cheap? No. Was it worth it? Absolutely. It was like taking home a brand new vintage guitar. In fact, I don't even remember it playing this well when I first got it. And besides, having worked on on your guitar by Matt Yumanov, it's kind of like having some edits to your documentary done by Werner Herzog, or having Susan Sontag touch up your manuscript. You know what I'm saying? It adds some history to the guitar in a good way. I was always kicking myself for not picking up a guitar at Matt's shop when it was still open. This kind of makes up for it. It was Matt's own decision to lessen his workload by closing down his iconic store and focusing on repairs and online sales. Who could blame him after nearly 50 years of running an iconic shop on busy Bleecker Street? Still, one can't help get the sense that uh, Matt's decision to close the shop may have been partially motivated by the changing of the neighborhood. While he used to be surrounded by family-owned bakeries, delicatessens, hardware stores, and the like. They've largely been replaced by overpriced boutiques, corporate chains, and it's just so symbolic of the loss of the character of the city of New York. The magnitude of Matt closing shop was well captured by various visiting reporters who covered the story, one that was hard to miss on New York's local TV news networks. This is New York's number one news, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. For generations of guitar gods, this was a temple, and Matt Yumanov, their guru. A legendary guitar store is closing its doors after more than 50 years in Greenwich Village. Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia among the customers who walked into the doors of Matt Yumanoff Guitars and in the process helped turn it into an iconic music store in the city. In a neighborhood that to those who remember it when might seem less like a village and now more like another strip of soulless corporate chains, the departure of the city's preeminent guitar shop represents something of a trend. I love it. I, I love the instruments. I love the people coming in here all the time. So Some who came in were famous. Most were not. He's a teenager who repaired guitars in the 1960s. He eventually started selling the instrument in his favorite neighborhood, 
Greenwich Village. Matt paid $125 a month for his first village shop and admits the only reason he's lasted this long in this location is that he owns the building. One of the few remaining businesses here, more than 25 years, with a name over the door still run by the original family. And then again, as the years go by in New York City, beloved neighborhood stores close their doors. Well, now one of the last holdouts on Bleecker Street is sadly doing the same. In fact, the loss of his store will be felt most in the village neighborhood where his store has become an institution. Fancy stores and restaurants and even the ubiquitous Starbucks have moved in. And longtime customers are already mourning the loss of Matt Yumanov guitars. The one thing that I can feel the best about, about having done all that I've done for all these years, is having helped so many people to make music. It's a wonderful thing. music you've been hearing was played entirely on the 1976 Gibson L5 and made possible by Matt Umanov's repairs. Did you like the music, by the way? In a normal podcast, there'd probably be a fraction of that amount of music. It might weave in or out. But this is not a normal podcast. And I'm not a normal person. And proud of it. So on that note, I'd like to take a break from our story for a little while and talk about the podcast itself. First, let me formally welcome you to episode one of Moods and Modes. I have quite a bit to say, so um, thanks for hanging in here with me. Uh, I hope you like what you've heard so far. Now, full disclosure, not every episode is going to be the same. Some episodes will have a lot more music and less talking. And um, I'll be honest, I don't really like to talk that much. <laughs> Maybe that's why I've procrastinated so long getting this podcast together. Believe it or not, this is something I've wanted to do since the mid-aughts. Um, back then, um, I had some friends who were um, musicians or very early in a story about emerging podcast technology. So I was thinking about this way back then. And... Um, over the years, every now and then, I'd try to give it a go and just kept getting bogged down with uh, my music career, which, in my defense, got uh, more and more exponentially busy. And another thing, in the time since I first thought about doing my own podcast back then, uh, the iPhone came along and apps came along. And suddenly, having a podcast was not that unique anymore. In fact, uh, 
Nowadays, it's almost more unique not to have one. <laughs> so I think I recorded my first attempt at a podcast episode around 2005, I'm embarrassed to say. And I have no idea where that content is. If it comes up, um, I'll share it for sure. So the next time I decided to give it a shot, it was around 2010. And I was down in Mexico recording as a guest for Rodrigo y Gabriela, the amazing guitar duo who I'd recently met and become friends with. That whole experience was fascinating. And I recorded us hanging out and talking and I had many clips of us playing together as well and was going to put that all together. The music you're hearing in the background, in fact, is a recent project uh, that I played on with Gab. And um, Rod, Gab, and I have lots of great music together I'll be sharing. But the good news is I still have that content. I found it. <laughs> so uh, at some point I'm going to be sharing it. And uh, Rod and Gab are still good friends and they're actually doing a series on their own that they're going to have me on pretty soon. So somehow I'm going to combine that with the classic footage. So there are some other podcasts that I've been on that you may not have heard where they're, they're always uh, going to let me share the content. That's kind of a condition I asked for to be on your podcast. And um, I should mention that in 2018, uh, that was the last time I decided to give it another go. And I invested in some additional podcast equipment and I got some good content. I got several really cool um, jam sessions and conversations with some great artists that uh, that I'm a fan of. And um, there's going to be that. But, um, you know, con considering that it's 2020 and we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, we're not always going to be able to do a one-on-one -on -one format. And there's no reason to lock ourselves into that anyway. There's different type of podcasts. I like uh, interview podcasts, but I also like uh, storytelling podcasts. So I think the best thing is to just figure this out as we go. Um, I see no reason to get locked into a set format. Um, I don't know how long every episode is going to be. Um, I don't see doing them for hours and hours like some podcasts. Um, I'd like to have each one at least 30 minutes. And um, I think that's how long this one is going to be. It's not over yet. We shall see. I also don't know how often that will be. Once a week would be great. Um, I don't know if that's going to be realistic. I hope to do them at least twice a month. It's a work in progress. Um, I hope uh, you guys can all give me feedback. Let me know how you like it. And let me know what's working and what's not. And um, I'm really excited about it. Uh, one more thing uh, before we get back to our story. I have created a Patreon account. This is the website that bridges the gap between audiences and artists and lets um, fans support artists directly. It's a really cool thing, and I have a bunch of friends who uh, are on there, and they're able to create more and more effectively as a result. So um, I plan to do much more of my creations uh, with the support of my patrons, including this podcast. By the time you're hearing this, I will have pressed launch. And uh, the Patreon account is under my name, Alex Skolnick. And any amount of support is appreciated. If it is difficult for you to support financially, that's totally understood. And you could still support the podcast by spreading the word. And if you like it, tell friends about it, give it reviews, and so on and so forth. So let's get back to our story. 
Remember, this is all about my visit to the guitar repair shop owned and run by the one and only Matt Umanov. Now, you may have noticed a slight differentiation between the Matt Umanov on the news clips, who is uh, sentimental, kind of has the aura of like the neighborhood grocer, and he is that guy. But, um, you know, when you hear him one on one, you know, it's he's a little saltier. The, the prof, you know, he's not shy about profanity, not shy about coarse language. They're both great sides. But just a warning for anyone with sensitive ears or has uh, children within earshot. Uh, this next segment will be featuring a little bit more of Matt's saltier side. So let me set the scene here. He's showing me a recent repair job that is a 1930s Martin acoustic. For those of you non-guitarists out there, Martins are some of the most cherished acoustic guitars there are. And they've been around a long time. So um, 1930s instruments are known as pre-war Martins. They're especially valuable. Well, this Martin in particular was laying around outside of its case wrapped in blankets and masking tape. And um, you can't really hear when he describes that part of it because I'm playing the SG that's in my hands, which uh, we're going to talk about more in a moment. But listen as he describes this um, 1930s Martin. Yeah, this was a 1930s Martin. A woman brought it in, wrapped in a blanket. It was in her basement with no case for 30 years. It was her father's. It was, uh, he had done some repairs himself, a long crack, all full of glue and shit. There was masking tape all over it that was 30 years old. This is a $50,000 guitar. Oh, my God. And it was a fucking disaster. The fucking disaster, of which he speaks, is gorgeous. It is a pre-war Martin that he has really managed to bring back to life. And it reminds me of an instrument you might see on the rack at a great vintage guitar shop, such as um, Groon Guitars or Carter's in Nashville, or uh, Retrofret in Brooklyn, who, by the way, I have a standing appointment to visit for an upcoming episode of Moods and Modes. I got my girlfriend working on it too, Daisy, you, you didn't meet her, she's, she's an artist, she's a painter, she's in known in galleries, but the other half of her life, painting conservator. Which is to say, right. you'd see like a $20 million painting on her, on her easel that somebody poked a hole in. Right. She'd make she it look like it never out. happened. Yeah, yeah. I know so, somebody does, does that with rare books. Well, she, yeah, it's a small world com- painting yeah. conservation conservator. So she helped us out with some of the, uh, the color mashup on it. We did one color. She did one on a, an old national uh, 1920s guitar that I ended up selling to Johnny Depp. And the color oh, mashup she did, man, you couldn't find it. You could uh, not see this shit. Okay. I think all that was pretty clear, but just to recap, his partner, not his business partner, but his partner in terms of companionship, happens to be a painter as well as an art conservator, and she is brought in to restore multi-million dollar paintings, and for Matt, she kind of acts as a reinforcement troop whenever the job calls for it. So she was brought in to restore this particular pre-war Martin That was a fucking disaster, (laughs) to use his words. And she also helped do some touch-up work on an old national guitar from the 20s. If you're not sure what those are, you've seen them. They're often made of metal. They're used for slide and old-timey blues. And they have a speaker on the front. It's called a resonator, 
And that's from back in the days when amplification wasn't as portable. This particular guitar was purchased by one Johnny Depp. I don't need to explain who that is. And if anybody's earned the right to name drop, it's Matt Umanoff. So I see Yuri down here one day. He's using some hot high glue, which you heat up, right? And he's doing some weird fucking thing with it, which I've never seen in 50 years. I'm like, right. what the fuck? So I mentioned it to Daisy. She says, the Russians, they know things about glue that we will never know. Is that right? Well, huh. just, you know. I guess they got, I guess. they got some weird shit going on over there. I'm sure. Well, they, you know, they do know about chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help but make the joke because there's an international incident going on involving a former Russian spy who survived a poisoning in London. So when I hear that sentence, the Russians, they know things about glue that we will never know. I can't help it. I'm sorry. Uh, of course, the um, material used in that poisoning, polonium, was something... Only the Kremlin has used. They pretty much have exclusive access to it. And, of course, they, they have no idea how this could have happened. They know nothing about it, of, of course. Anyway, it's just a joke. Here he continues to describe Yuri's work on my guitar. This is not the L5, by the way. This is the SG, which needed a lot of work. And he was also very knowledgeable about exactly which frets to put in. Uh, it, it, I think he, I think I heard him talking to you on the phone. He had to use a particular kind of fret wire that had enough meat on there so that he could do little things here and there to compensate for some of the fingerboard that's missing. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how he did that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a crazy Russian. <laughs> he's a crazy Russian. <laughs> of course, that is meant endearingly and playfully. And uh, all kidding aside, I think Matt could have gotten this guitar where it needed to be on his own. But I imagine it would have taken a lot longer. You know, there's no substitute for somebody who thinks differently about age-old problems like uh, fret wire and missing parts of necks. And um, this guitar had all those problems and more, which I'll tell you about in a second. But just having additional manpower in the case of Yuri or woman power in the case of Daisy. Um, fortunately, Daisy wasn't needed for my guitar. She worked on Johnny Depp's guitar and that Martin that I was talking about earlier. So let's talk about my guitar. It may not have needed Daisy's cosmetic handiwork, but it certainly needed everything Yuri and Matt had to offer in terms of fretwork, bodywork, hardware, missing fingerboard, and everything else that was referred to. That unplugged noodling you're hearing, some annoying guy noodling in the background, that's me. But I can't help it because the guitar was completely unplayable before. This is my first time trying it. It's got a really nice sound. Yeah. Right yeah. One thing you want to know big about, for an SG, you know. about SGs in general, you know the story about Les Paul with, with the SGs? You know, he invented the whole the solid body and all the whatever, right. the Gibson used. And in the early 60s, when they came out with the SG shape and they wanted to put make Les Paul models with that, right. He said, and I knew the dude too, he was a character. Yeah, I met him, uh, I saw him at the Iridium. So there you go, yeah, he was up there. Yeah, it was really funny. Now, if this guy says you're a character, <laughs> you're a character. I did meet Les a couple times, and it's true. I saw him perform in the 90s, and I saw one of his final performances in the mid-O's, both times at the Iridium, a place that's become like a second home for my instrumental playing. The Iridium, by the way, is almost a shrine to Les Paul. His image is everywhere. 
Uh, I even got to play with the Les Paul Trio one time. Um, in the year after his passing, they were doing a series with guest artists. And um, I'm reminded of Matt with Les Paul, even though they were different generations. If Les were still around, he'd be over 100 years old. Matt's still in his early 70s. But they both have this um, quality. You know, they're both meticulous craftspeople, and they have this East Coast brutal honesty and sense of humor. And I have to say, they don't make them like that anymore. Anyway, let's listen as Matt explains how Les Paul hated the SG Les Paul when they put it out under his name. No, you're not putting my name on that because Buffalo the SG decided it sucks. <laughs> They're untunable, etc. And he's right. And here's the thing. Just to be clear, what he's saying isn't, I agree with Les, the whole design of the SG sucks. No, um... What he is saying is he can understand why Les was annoyed that they put this guitar out, put his name on it, basically without telling him. And it is a very different tuning system. It doesn't stay in tune as well as the Les Paul. It's still a wonderful guitar. Yet you can understand how a perfectionist like Les Paul, with the most influential individually named guitar back then and today, didn't want his name on this thing. Still, a bunch of them went on the market as the Gibson Les Paul SG. Famously, one was used in 1962 by the great artist Sister Rosetta Tharp. If you don't know who she is, by the way, please turn off this podcast and Google Sister Rosetta Tharp. Here's Matt with more on the design of the SG. But a lot of guitars playing in tune up and down the neck has to do with how they vibrate as a whole. Yeah, okay? sure. The SG with this long neck and this thin, lightweight body, it vibrates weird. And so... When you really get into it, you see, gee, it's in tune here, but out of tune there, worse than on my other guitars. Right. right. That's why. And thankfully, uh, my guitar that I've brought in is a very good specimen, which is great to hear from somebody who would know. So uh, this is absolutely as good as SGs ever get and better than most. Did you hear that? If you didn't, I'll repeat it for you. This is absolutely as good as SGs get and better than most. Believe me, if this guitar sucked, he would tell me. <laughs> this is a guy who means what he says. Hey, do you guys want to hear the guitar plugged in? I'm going to plug it in and let you hear it for real in a moment. First, I want to tell you the story behind it, and then we'll, uh, we'll end this first episode with a little bit of playing. This guitar needed more than a repair. Uh, to say it needed a repair job is an understatement. It needed a fucking restoration. Excuse my language. I think uh, hanging out with Matt Yumanov has uh, increased my profanity. This guitar was completely unplayable. It sat in my closet for the better part of 10 years. Just off the top of my head, the guitar had no pickups. There were tuning heads missing. The frets were worn so down. It felt like it didn't have frets and the hardware was, was messed up, and somebody had done some work on it, or attempted to do some work on it. They didn't do a very good job, uh, according to Matt Umanoff. When this thing, somebody, whoever refretted it before, wow. yeah, they took a lot of meat out of the fingerboard. It's why you see, see that corner of an inlay is yeah. gone. Yep. Somebody went down right through the inlay. Wow. Okay, yeah. Okay. Also, what they did was, who the fuck knows, this, this is like, the, yeah. When we say handcuffs should have been issued. 
Um, he's not kidding. Okay. Uh, they, yeah. The fingerboard was like rolled off with an extra curve this way. Not uh, good. Mm. A lot. Of, there were binding that was like fucked up. Right. So Yuri yeah. straightened it all out, got it leveled. Also, the neck was a little twisted, which happens. It's wow. very common on SGs because this is a very long neck. Now, the way I acquired this guitar is quite interesting. Again, it was completely unplayable and required at least a four-digit figure investment. The person who had it did not want to do that and just said, keep it, do something with it. <laughs> and uh, he was an amateur player himself. Uh, his main gig was in music management, and he had worked for some of the top management companies on the planet, including one that managed some 90s bands, and they had an office with like the equivalent of a book exchange at a coffee place. You know, take a book, leave a book. Except with guitars. Now keep in mind, these are huge bands. Now as far as this guy, I'm not sure this person wants to be named, so I'm not going to name him, but he is legit. And um, while I don't have a certificate about who owned this guitar at one time, the story I am told, and very reliably, is uh, that with this... Uh, you know, this in-house guitar exchange, um, one, this was one of the guitars that was grabbed by one of the artists and kept it for a while, and then it ended up back at their management office, um, and he grabbed a different guitar, whatever. But while he had it, he wrote some songs on it, including songs that ended up on an album called Super Unknown. So, of course, I'm talking about the artist uh, Chris Cornell, one of the greatest singers of certainly my generation. Um, I'm only a few years younger and um, just, you know, an inspiration for so many who's been gone uh, almost exactly three years as I do this podcast. So, I, you know, I've never talked about it publicly. It's not really something I want to advertise, but I think it's worth knowing and it's worth sharing and in his memory. And um, I think it was beat up even before Chris had it and then when he couldn't do anything else with it you know he exchanged it for another shared guitar at their their management so I wasn't sure anything could be done with it I was pleased to find out that it was even salvageable so uh let's hear Matt tell a little more about what happened you see here's the thing those years when Gibson the way they made they, they made guitars here's what they do they'd make right. the fingerboard they'd slot it they put the frets in, right. then they'd file them down flush. Huh. Then they would glue binding on, which means the fret ends would only come up to the binding. Okay. They would never hang over. Right. This is the old, like, 19th century Martin way of cutting back each fret so that they hang over a little. Yeah. Well, he did that to give you a little extra to compensate for the way somebody else fucked up the fingerboard. Okay, yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about all this guitar must have been through since 1968. Somehow it found its way to Seattle. Who knows if it went there with its original owner or was shipped there originally? Back then, Gibson guitars were manufactured in Kalamazoo, Michigan. The company hadn't moved to Nashville yet. A guitar with that much wear and tear must have seen a lot of action. One imagines it must have been used in a lot of clubs in the 70s and 80s. By the time it found its way to a famous management company in the 90s, it was pretty beat up. Even in the hands of uh, its most famous owner, who had it for a brief period... It wasn't even usable live. <laughs> now it's in the hands of a, a sort of famous owner. I guess I'm kind of famous. If you read guitar magazines, you probably know who I am. But it also has the history of being worked on, restored, by a very noteworthy repairman who has been in business 
about the same amount of time that this guitar has been in existence. Now, some of the handiwork done on this instrument over the years may cause somebody like Matt Umanoff to cringe, but it's not entirely their fault. Um, some of the fault lies with the SG itself. Let's give Matt the final word. It's a long piece of wood, and if you think of like on a Les Paul, the actual piece of wood is only like that. Okay. Or about like so. So SG necks, they're, they're often squirrely. Right, right. So he got a little bit of it taken care of with the fingerboard, a little bit with the frets. He, like, he fools around with frets here, right. a different way frets there, a different way there. And this is, uh, this is fucking prime. Wow, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking prime. I don't think every episode's going to have this many curse words in it, but you know what? <laughs> it fits. And on that note, uh, let's hear a little bit of the thing sounds it's fun to play too uh you may have heard i knocked it a little bit out of tune the tuning is a challenge just like uh, matt Umanov was explaining there is a thing with these necks that it's kind of hard for them to stay in tune but it's in the zone it's in in tune enough i do think they got the tuning together a little more later on i have a more recent sg from 2008 or 9 and it seems to stay in better tune uh, but there is some magic, I think, that these early ones have as far as tone. I think uh, Sister Rosetta was way ahead of her time. The, the guitar really didn't catch on until the 70s. People like Frank Zappa, Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath, Angus Young of ACDC. You may have heard me quoting those guys. And that, that's like ideal SG riffage. And then the double neck SG, I think, really caught on. I mean, then you have Jimmy Page, John McLaughlin, Alex Lifeson playing the double neck SG. I have one of those, too. That will probably make its way into one of the shows. So you know what, folks? We are approaching the 40-minute mark, and that seems like a really good time to start wrapping things up. I tend to like podcasts that are around that length, and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, I think uh, this is going to be a really cool venture. As I speak to you, it is May of 2020. And there's going to be no touring for the foreseeable future. So this is a great way to connect with everybody. I had a blast doing this. A lot of ideas came while working on this for future episodes. So I want to thank Matt Umanov 
for um, letting me hit record, capture some of his great stories and uh, the process of fixing the guitars, and of course for fixing the guitars so wonderfully. If you're liking what you're hearing, please support on Patreon under the name Alex Skolnick, and um, please spread the word, leave a, a review, tell as many people as you can. Moods and Modes is produced by me, Alex Skolnick, for Skull Productions. Our editor is me, Alex Skolnick. Our theme music is composed by me. <laughs> I actually really had a good time uh, creating the music for this, uh, both the theme music and all the snippets throughout. Um, the track you're hearing, there are additional musicians. Um, this is uh, Matt Zabrowski playing the drums and Nathan Peck on the bass. They're two of my favorite people as well as players. Oh, and there's one other track. It's a blues track that played earlier. It obviously has a live band. That's Matt and Nate as well. Gabriela Lopez is playing with me on the part where uh, she and Rodrigo are mentioned. That music in the background. And that is it. We did it. Episode one is complete. Thank you so much. See you next time. People like uh, Zappa and Tony Iommi. Oh, there's there's Gizmo, my cat. Hey, Gizmo. Um, Tony Iommi. Gizmo. Just sit. Shh. And there you. Whoa, Gizmo! What are you doing? Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com DMB. Thanks, Relics. Osiris. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.